2: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talise, I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Julia Maskivker. Julia is Associate Professor of Political Science at Rollins College. She specializes in political theory, focusing on topics in distributive justice and democracy. Her new book is titled The Duty to Vote. It's just been published with Oxford University Press. Now, when we're asked what democracy is, many of us instantly think of elections and thus voting. However, we're also prone to regard voting as a right. That is something which citizens may decide to do or not. Although we tend to see voting as central to democracy, We also also think that although voting is a commendable thing that one might choose to do, one's not morally blameworthy, at least not in any strong sense, for opting not to vote. In fact, among political theorists and some political philosophers, voting tends to be regarded as irrational, reckless, or worse. Some have even suggested that low voter turnout is a signal of the health of a democratic society. Now, in her new book, Julia Maskefger pushes against these tendencies. She makes a case for thinking that voting is an obligation rooted in a Samaritan duty. There's a lot to talk about. But let's begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Julia.
1: Hi,
2: Bob. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, thank you.
2: Great oh well to thank be you here. for thank you for appearing on on the program. So why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: All right. Well, I'm um, a little bit of, a, of an interesting case. I'm a political theorist from Argentina in South America who's been living in this country for nearly 16 years. Came all the way from Buenos Aires to start my PhD at Columbia University in New York and stayed. Um, um, and, and I think uh, being from Argentina, my, my nationality played a huge role in explaining or understanding how I got interested or became interested in voting, and democracy more generally from a theoretical or normative perspective. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Argentina has uh, compulsory voting. Yes. It is is legally obligatory for Argentine citizens to cast a ballot during all elections, midterm elections and presidential elections. Um, um, There's a fine if one doesn't uh, fulfill this duty. Uh, it's not a huge sanction on the part of the state. One doesn't go to jail or anything like that. But um, it, it is viewed, uh, voting It's viewed as a civic duty that is enforced by law. Um, and when I came to this country 15 years ago, I realized that voting and elections were not necessarily seen in the same way by the general electorate or the average citizen, um, I noticed that voting was not steeped into this sort of sense of sanctity or importance that we saw in Argentina and in other countries in Latin America. Um, for example, in Argentina, we have when elections get closer, by law, political advertising has to stop two days before the election, huh. alcohol is prohibited. Alcohol sales are prohibited. <laughs> no, these, drunk <laughs> no drunk voting. No drunk voting. all these measures are supposed to are supposed to enable an environment in which the voter or the would be voter is free and 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 to to decide and to deliberate without without noise, without overwhelming. Um, 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 stimuli from outside. So the idea is that there are two days for deliberation because a voting decision is so important. I realized that in America or in the US, (laughs) these things were completely foreign to the culture, the political culture. Um, And I'm not saying the Argentine reality is better in all respects than the American one, but but this really called my attention. and then another issue that called my attention and sort of drove me to think about questions of voting and voting ethics is the fact that America or the US has the lowest one of the lowest turnout rates right. in, in presidential elections among all advanced democracies. I thought that was strange. And and and, 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 and it made me think that um, that maybe there's something to to the idea that voting is a civic duty. I'm not sure that voting should be a legal duty. My book doesn't argue for the for the morality of making voting compulsory, um, but 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 it definitely this was the inspiration. I think this 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 gap in the perception of vote of what the role of voting should be in a democracy.
2: You know that's really interesting, and you know, um, I I was looking at um, uh, some um some recent data uh about um you know voter participation. And, you know, it does strike me in, in the United States, um, you know, when you compare the relatively low voter uh turnout with um what happens on social media over politics, um it's very it's, it's sort of a mismatch. You know, people are um you know, sounding off and participating in political arguments, or uh, maybe calling them arguments, as being charitable, people are participating in politics in in ways. Um, you know, they they sh- they're sharing messages and retweeting, and you know, joining uh, in pylons uh, about politics and all the rest, um, um, which would lead you to think that you know maybe voter turnout will you know will surge. But it hasn't seemed to, which is very puzzling, right? Um,
1: yeah, I think what we see in social media is not necessarily representative of the larger electorate. But, but something that, that was quite no- noteworthy years ago well, I guess two or three Obama was still the president, he did mention in a public appearance that maybe it would be a good idea to think about compulsory voting in the U.S. Now, I'm not saying that's a good idea necessarily, but it got people talking about the merits of the system. And part of what inspired me to write this book is that I thought, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we be talking about whether voting is a moral duty first? It's, it's, right? So that's part of what led me to think about this issue more seriously.
2: Well, fabulous. Um, so why don't we then start talking about the book, which I'll, I'll just say to the, the listeners is is a real tour de force. I mean, it is really um, a very carefully argued, but yet um, uh, accessible and readable um, book. You know, um, in the political science and political philosophy literature, some of the stuff on voting gets um Dry very quickly, uh, but your book, uh, your book, um, it, it doesn't suffer uh, 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 in that way. Um, so um, maybe start with some background. Um, now, I, I take it it might surprise some listeners to hear a bit about the range um, of mainstream views in political theory and in political philosophy that take a, either skeptical or a negative stance with respect to voting and its value and its status as a, as a duty. Um, that is, it's very common f- for uh, political theorists and philosophers to characterize it roughly in the way that you uh, characterize it at the beginning of your book and in the way I characterized it in the uh, introductory remarks. It's a nice thing to do, or it's a commendable thing to do, but not a thing that it's wrong not to do. Um, maybe one place to begin then is, can, can you just sort of fill in a little bit of that background? Um, perhaps attending specifically to the the kind of view that you uh, characterize as the libertarian challenge to the duty to vote.
1: Yeah, so that's right. My book is a direct response to what I call the libertarian challenge to the duty to vote. So in the last 10 to 15 years, we've witnessed a renaissance or a rebirth of what I call the libertarian position against the duty to vote. and I think this position has become dominant in the voting ethics literature, uh, unfortunately, hence my motivation to write the book. People like Jason Brennan, Ilya Somin, Brian Kaplan, and Lauren Lomaski epitomize this view. And, and, and I say rebirth because they're not the original proponents of this idea. It goes, the idea goes back to the 60s and 50s. It's basically, as you mentioned, if we had to summarize it. The objection against a putative duty to vote is that voting is irrational. It's, mm-hmm. it's dumb or it's stupid to vote because one single vote gets lost in a proverbial ocean of votes, right? In, in large elections and in most elections, they argue, the single vote that the person casts will not tilt the election, will not have any impact on the outcome of oh the election. So it makes no sense to get out and vote because the costs of voting, that is having to get out of the house, drive to the polls, acquire the information necessary to make a minimally informed decision, those costs outweigh the benefits of voting. And the benefits are measured strictly in personal or individual terms. That is, you don't gain anything from voting because your action will not produce any any difference will not be any any impactful on the actual or final result of the election. And if that's the case, then the rational thing to do is to stay home. <laughs> mm. um, um, so I said I said rebirth. The disposition is a rebirth of, of an earlier sort of account or approach to political participation that we can identify broadly with 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 a bunch of empirical political scientists that in the 60s and late 50s took to surveying the electorate and measuring people's political knowledge and political interest. So the most sort of paradigmatic example of this is Philip Converse in his 1964 study of the American electorate, where he discovers or finds out that most people have completely incoherent views about politics and ideology. Uh, of course, we know later that the study was not without its problems, so we can mm. challenge its results, but it has stuck in the right. sort of academic mind of political scientists. And political theorists and philosophers have sort of drawn from this series of studies of which Converses uh, represents sort of the, main, the main example to argue that, yeah, you see, people don't know anything. They don't care. They don't know anything. So if you add that piece of information to the idea, a more theoretical idea that voting is irrational, then why should we think of it as a moral duty at all, right? It, 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 if something is completely impactless, it makes no difference to the world. You can't make a difference to the world by acting on it. Then and 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 and. It, and you don't know what you're doing, basically, when you're doing it, why should we think of that as a moral duty? Uh, rather, as you said before, the duty should be not to vote if we don't have the information to do so responsibly. Right? But, but as I as I as I say in the book, there is a huge, or what I think it's an enormous inconsistency in this argument. Brennan makes this argument in his book, The Ethics of Voting. He says, We don't have a duty to vote, but we do have a duty to refrain from voting badly, understanding badly as without information or immorally, based on prejudices. And he says the reason why that's the case is because it's morally wrong to contribute to a collectively harmful activity. That is, when many people vote badly, the result can be disastrous. That is, indecent, unjust, inept governments can be installed as a result of this. It's wrong to contribute to a morally repugnant or a morally bad um, outcome like this, so you should refrain from voting. I said, well, I completely agree with that. But if that's the case, you're not basing your argument for the duty to not vote on the impact that right. your abstention will have, because it's clear that one abstention will not make a difference. You're ref- you're basing the argument on the duty not to vote badly, On the fact that it's immoral to contribute to something that's wrong, regardless of whether you can make a difference or not when doing that. And if that's the case, then it can also make sense to say that it's morally worthy and even an obligation to contribute to a collective activity that will have beneficial effects for everyone, even if your single little contribution does not change things dramatically by itself.
2: Right, so that I thought that that um, observation—that you know, at least in 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 some of the versions of the libertarian challenge, as you call it—there is a prescriptive upshot of the, the the sort of description of voting as you know irrational because non-impactful and also. Um, uh, you know, often, uh, insufficiently informed. So thinking particularly about the brand that there could be a duty not to vote. Um, so there is a prescriptive upshot, um, from premises that look like they are, um, uh, also designed to suggest that voting is a normatively inert, uh, uh, act. I thought that was, um, uh that was a nice observation uh and um uh, a good way of framing uh uh your 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 pushback against the libertarian challenge because i take it that um the argument the positive argument uh that you launch um is that um no we are in fact required morally to vote um because um voting is an act that's necessary um uh, from the point of view of, uh, a Samaritan duty to, um, help further, uh, the good of, you know, competent, just responsive government, or at least, uh, to further the Samaritan duty of, uh, making a contribution to things not getting worse. (laughs) Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Samaritan, uh, nature of, uh, of the obligation to vote on your view?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah, so, so as you said, the cornerstone of my claim for the duty to vote is that the, the duty to vote can be seen, or we should see, through the lens of a Samaritan duty of aid towards our fellow citizens. And and the idea here is that um, elections are not morally trivial events. Why not? Because elections put governments in power, and they take them out. And Governments understood as the group of individuals in the seat of government at a particular time, they have an enormous power to affect the life prospects of citizens. They can block or enact policy that will facilitate or truncate access to primary goods such as healthcare, income security, peace or war. These are, these, are, these are things that, that have or can have a tremendous impact on our quality of life. So I argue that participating in elections and voting with some minimal degree of information, as I will argue later, um, should be seen or could be seen in the light of a sort of natural duty of justice to help or to aid others in trouble or in need. In this particular case, it will be our fellow citizens in society in general. Now, the, the notion of a Samaritan duty, we are sort of all familiar with it from, from the Bible, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an interesting idea because, as I argue, it does not entail a high cost. That is, for us to be good Samaritans, we don't necessarily have to do large sacrifices or engaging in costly activities that will put our, our, our basic interests in jeopardy. So we're familiar with these type of situations in our daily life. For example, if we're driving to work and we see someone at the side of the road having a heart attack, well, most of us would think that if it's, it would be easy for us to stop and maybe call in for help. Or if we're walking down the street and we see a building up in flames and someone inside the building calling for help, well, it's not far-fetched or irrational to think that we may have a duty to stop, get out our cell phones, and call 911. No, we don't have a duty to go into the building and Mm -hmm. put our health, our life at risk. That would be heroic, right, or supererogatory. But I think it makes sense to think that we have a duty to stop and ask for help. We're calling for help. This is the idea of the Samaritan obligation that I want to highlight. When it's not too costly or when it wouldn't be too costly or too difficult to help others because we wouldn't lose anything morally important by doing so, then we do have a natural duty of justice to help. And I think elections sort of offer us a situation in which it would be relatively easy. It wouldn't be completely costless to help because we would have to engage in the process of searching and for information and understanding certain basic issues at stake in the election, but it wouldn't be unduly costly to participate in this activity that when many others do the same, would have beneficial effects on society. Um, So really, the main claim of the book is that participating in elections and voting is a duty of, it's a collective duty, if you will. It's a duty of common pursuit, right? In order to affect the Samaritan outcome that we are looking for, all of us have to act in concert. It's a duty that calls us to cooperate with each other and vote so that the outcome that we're looking for, that is good governance, is actually possible. Um, uh, no, I think it's not, it, it's not foreign to our sort of daily experiences to think about duties to help others that are collective in nature. For example, when we think about climate change, Uh, we we tend to think that it may be our duty or it is our duty to reduce our carbon footprint. But we know that for this action to actually have an impact, many other people need to be doing the same thing. In, In order to minimize pollution, we need to recycle. But it would be nice that many people do that so that pollution actually diminishes um. So the book argues that this is not a this is not a an inconsistent or a, or a overtly demanding um, obligation. It actually is quite easy, uh, but 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 the important aspect here to highlight is that in order in order to be effective, it needs collective cooperation. So the right. yes so could you could you say a, could you fill in
2: that uh, just a little bit more because um you know you are you you, you do raise a um a, a range of what strike me as as pretty intuitive responses to um you know the 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 element of the libertarian challenge that is going to rely at this juncture on the sort of one drop in the ocean kind of thought, right? So you've emphasized that it's a collective duty, uh, it's a duty to engage or contribute to a collective action. Um, so could, could you fill in that story a little bit more and, you know, you, you do give these sort of like, you know, well, you know, there's a somebody, uh, in, in drowning in a pond and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, a, yeah, you, you, the other, you know, a bunch of us have to, you know, none of one, n- no one of us in, in particular is, um, uh, can accomplish this, the, the, accomplish the, 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 ne- the needed act by himself. But that certainly doesn't mean that any of us is off the hook. Right. right. <laughs> so Yeah. Could, so could you spell that out just a little bit more? Because I thought the arguments there were really um, uh, uh, very compelling.
1: Sure. Th- this is in sort of in technical terms, it's a problem of maybe over-causation or, or something else. But but this is the objection. The objection coming from the libertarian camp is this. Well, if your little action, your single individual action, will not change the world in any discernible way by itself, why should we think of it as a moral duty, right? It, 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 well, think of it in this in this. In these terms, and I take this example from Virginia Held's uh, article um, on harm. She was and my the- teacher, by the way. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, I love her work. <laughs> the, the name of the article escapes me right now, but it's it's a very it's it's a very consequential article on harm. Yeah, I
2: think it's called "Can a group of random individuals be responsible?"
1: Right. This this yeah. and, and the, the example has been reproduced in different ways, but but the the gist of it is this. So you're 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 riding the subway in your car there's six people with you and all of a sudden uh, you witness an attack that someone s- starts tabbing or attacking a passenger who's minding his own business um the question is well you yourself could not restrain this attacker it would be impossible he would probably um, attack you and maybe kill you, harm you in ways that, that will be unacceptable. It will be too costly for you to act alone. But all the other people around you, those six other people around you, acting together with you could easily restrain the attacker. So does the fact that none of them alone can, can restrain the attacker mean that they don't have a duty to cooperate or to coordinate a rescue, if you will, with the others. No, of course not. Even though they're not, they're not strong enough to restrain the attacker themselves. Acting uh, singly, they do have a duty to coordinate with all the others and act together, if you will, jump at the attacker. All of them. Um, so, so, so you could say. So, someone could say, "Well, the fact that none of these people are effective alone means that that that, that they don't have a duty to." initiate the coordination effort. But I say, no, that's not the way to read this. The fact, the fact is that none of these people have a stronger claim than any other to be left off the hook, right? right. Why, should, why should I be relieved from the duty? What makes me more important than, 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 than the next passenger sitting next to me? Prima facie, right. nothing. <laughs>
2: Right, 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 and so you know you you can even give um, as you do sort of these other kinds of intuitive cases where it's like yeah my contribution to um, some particular charity that is morally worthy that is a, achieving you know pursuing a morally worthy end you know my contribution uh, to Oxfam is not going to end world hunger. However, (laughs) you know, none of us think that um, there's something particularly obscure or philosophically problematic about the thought that each of us has um, a duty, at least of some kind, in many cases we would want to say it's an imperfect duty in that Kantian sense, um, a a duty of some kind to contribute to charity, despite the fact that you've got a sort of one drop in the ocean uh, dynamic uh, in those cases as well. Is that right?
1: Right. As I said before, uh, we're familiar with these types of situations. Uh, we, we don't think that these ways of thinking about helping others or helping the world or improving the world are odd or strange. We do this all the time. We give to charity. We give to finding the cure of cancer. And we don't think that our own little contribution will, will make much of a difference. But, but we think that we have a duty to contribute because the end result of everyone else doing this, like, like us, is, is completely worthy, valuable, and desirable. So, um, and I actually argue in the book that if we're worried about changing big trends in society or achieving justice in ways that are structural, if you will, voting as a collective activity, of course, can be seen as much more effective than other ways of helping others. Um so basically the idea here is that a contribution to a larger collective activity that is that is worthy and desirable should be seen as valuable not because of what it can achieve by itself but because be, because of what it adds because of the nature of that larger pursuit so right. the the value of the larger pursuit sort of um Informs, or the, the, the value of the smaller little contribution, right? It, yeah. it, it, goes from the, it, it goes from top to bottom, if you will. Yeah.
0: Right, 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 very good. That's a good way to put it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh-huh. So
2: now the, the, let's sort of add one little dimension, which is sort of crucial here, right? Because the argument... Um, For the Samaritan duty, of course, uh, is not um, the argument uh, that, um, just like in the Samaritan case, the duty is not simply to intervene, it's to help. (laughs) Similarly, uh, in the case of voting, uh, you want to say that um, the Samaritan duty underwrites a obligation not simply to vote, but to vote with care, as you sometimes put it, or to cast a considered vote. Um so can you, can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, su- I suspect that that is yet another juncture where sort of a different element of the libertarian challenge, as you put it, is going to come in, because this is where it looks like we're going to have um, sort of informational and other kinds of requirements uh, introduced that, that, that have to be met.
1: Sure. So, yes, this is a very important point. My argument is not for the duty to vote simpliciter, but for the duty to vote. With care or judiciously, as I put it in several times in the book, um, that means with some degree of information, with sufficient information <laughs> to make the ballot acceptably good, and then we can talk about what that means but before I go into and, and i and I devote a whole chapter to this issue, but before I go into the arguments for that chapter i would I would like to clarify one one thing um we usually hear this 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 objection that goes like this. Well, so many people are not in a position to vote well. They don't know what they're doing. They, they don't have the information. They don't care. That we cannot think about voting as a duty because it's actually, in reality, a lot of people will not be able to discharge this duty. My response to that is that but the fact that people or some people are not well-positioned to discharge a duty does not mean that the duty is morally unjustified. We know, for example, that many people are not in a position or do not care to discharge duties that we consider valid, such as the duty not to steal, the duty not to kill, the duty not to lie. A lot of people um, fail to fulfill these duties for no justified reasons, and we don't think that these duties are therefore non-existing because of this. So I think it is the work of philosophers and political theorists to to try to argue normatively for certain duties, but it's not their job to make sure that people are in a position to fulfill them. Although it is our job, I think, to be mindful of the fact that we cannot argue for certain duties or obligations if it's true that they are completely inconsistent with some sort of basic notion of human nature. Or human psychology, uh, that would be completely impossible for any living human being to fulfill these duties. That they are too demanding. But I don't think that that's the case with the duty to vote. I think the duty to vote is not unduly demanding. And even if it's true that some people are not in a position to fulfill it now, I do not think that it will be rational or unreasonable to think that many more could be in the future with the right reforms. So, said that, I can proceed to talking to you about the two conditions that I argue are necessary to make a vote a good vote or a judicious vote, in my understanding. Um, The first one I call the fair mindedness or the impartiality condition, and the second one I call the epistemic competence condition. So, this basically means that in order to cast a good enough ballot You have to put yourself in the shoes of others. Your decision as to what candidate or what policies you are going to support cannot be completely selfish. The impartiality condition does not mean that that your decision has to be self-facing. Your self-interest matters, but it cannot be the overriding or the only uh, ingredient to a to a to a good vote. Um, so voting impartially, we can understand this condition in the light of um, what Sidwick called centuries ago, the point of view of the universe. Right? And more sort of more closer examples in time of that are Rolf's original position or Scanlon's non rejectability test. We don't have to get technical data here is that you have to take the broader view right and 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 political science science research shows or confirms that people do vote with the common interest in mind they may not necessarily agree with each other as to what that is but 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 the idea that 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 thinking about what society needs when voting is possible is not is not that that, that far fetched um The second condition for a good vote, as I argue, is the most, if you will, controversial, empirically speaking, the idea that people have to vote with a minimal degree of information and understanding, epistemic understanding of what the the options are. Um, So the idea that people cannot do this, that most people cannot do this, is what a libertarian critic takes as central to build his or her case. Um, I argue that it's not true that this, 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 the, the impossibility that we see in so many people to vote well is it, not only due to cognitive flaws at the individual level. We have that, but but it, voter incompetence can also be understood in the light of of this structural. Um, factors, political and economic, that explain um, to some non-negligible degree why people do not care about politics or do not know about politics. So I argue that if we start thinking seriously about certain political reforms to the electoral system, the political party system, to the economic system, then it, it, it it would probably be the case that, uh, that we, would, we would see a large decrease in levels of political ignorance. Uh, so I argue that political ignorance is not a fact. It's not an act of God. It's not an unchangeable situation. Um, we, we, can, we can toy with it. We can affect it with the right political and economic um, changes.
2: Right, you know, I, I, I dabbled in some of this at some point, uh, not the, you know, some some years back, um, and you know, it it it's, it struck me then, and I, I guess I want to ask you if this is still if this is still the case. It struck me then that um, a lot of the the literature that was drawing sort of pretty large, uh, impactful conclusions from, you know public ignorance findings, you know, the number of, uh, you know, the the number of citizens who can't name the three branches of government established in the U.S. Constitution, don't know the number of senators, you know, these kinds of things. Um, It seemed as if uh, some fairly, if I could put it this way, fairly rudimentary um, distinctions uh, in... In epistemology, were just not being respected in this. So, you know, the the difference between a false belief and an unfounded belief um, was just not being reflected in the way that um, the experiments or the, the the polls were being designed, and um, the the literature seemed to not be interested uh, in making a distinction between somebody who believes something that's false or doesn't ha- doesn't have a belief about something. Um, despite having all of the relevant information placed before her and somebody who's got a false belief um uh but that false belief is what the information she has access to actually warrants um is your impression still that the, um uh, you know the the i i I, I dare say that there's been, you know some books uh that that are fairly current um Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Akin and Bartel's book book, um, that uh, seem to me to sort of have that feature to them, that um, there's this this, certain kinds of distinctions aren't being respected. You just want the conclusion that people have false beliefs, therefore they're ignorant, therefore they couldn't be improved.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the distinction that you draw in your your work between belief, um, ignorance and age and Ignorance is key right we the idea that if people don't know it's not true that if people don't know it's it's their fault or it's because right. they're lazy or because they don't care or because they would rather be doing something else. There may be some structural um reasons why information is not getting to them as effectively as it should um uh, so the chapter the the it's the chapter delves or dwells pretty pretty profoundly with this question and sort of I describe a series of, of, of reasons that may explain why people are not getting the information that they should be getting. Um, these include uh, many, money in politics, a lack of regulation for campaigns, um, lack of campaign uh, finance regulations that, that explain why politicians get captured special interest so the policy that results from the electoral process is not necessarily the policy that most people prefer it's the policy that 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 politicians produced as a returned favor for the money that they received to run (laughs) for office (laughs) in the first place and and one case in point is the honor right we know that not upwards of 90 percent of americans would support some sort of regulation in gun ownership, regardless of partisan affiliation, and yet Congress is not producing any sort of changes. We can't say with a straight face that this is because people have stupid preferences for dying in mass shootings. It's right. because the political class is not being responsive enough to the preferences of the people. So, in, in other, many other structural sort of factors or variables can be given. That may explain in part why so many people do not know uh, as much as they should uh, when it comes to politics. Um, uh, Single district, uh, single member districts, as opposed to proportional representation, uh, the bipartisan system, only two parties, um, lacks of civic education in schools for decades. uh, Electoral election fatigue, too many elections at the same time, right, um, right. many many things that we could think are amenable to political reform, and that could, I think, uh, have a very positive impact on the degree that people are interested in politics and, and how much they know. People don't have to be experts. This is another thing that the, the, the libertarian, if you will, objector to my case um, has to say. Politics is a very important endeavor. Um, you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have an operation with someone who's not a doctor, or you, <laughs> you, you wouldn't call a non-plumber to fix your, your, your plumbing after a flood. This 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 requires knowledge expertise. I say yeah, it's fine. It's true that politics requires some degree of knowledge, but it's not the same as <laughs> doctoring or brain professional plumbing yeah. or brain right. surgery. Right. And Aristotle said this. He was not a fan of full democracy, but he said this. You no, know, when we hire an architect in the politics, when we hire an architect to build a house, yeah, we rely on him for his knowledge. But the fact is, he says that the person that will live in that house may have uh, as interesting and as informative things to say as the architect himself, because he's the one that's going to live there. I think it would be irrational to think that the common voter may understand and know um, much more than we give him or her credit for um, when it comes to politics. Good,
2: good, good, good. So uh, just to sort of, uh sort of track where we're at in the argument. So we've got a duty to vote on the basis of this um, Samaritan uh, obligation to vote on the basis of the Samaritan duty. It's the obligation to vote judiciously or with care. And now the argument is that casting a vote of that kind, judicious uh, or caring or considered vote, is... um, not too demanding. And some of the evidence that's often marshaled to suggest that it is beyond the cognitive capabilities of ordinary citizens uh, looks like it's um, overblown. Um, so uh, let me sort of move on to the one sort of further uh, leg of the the libertarian challenge. Um, Some argue that since bad voting is um, uh, unjustifiably, let's say, bad voting unjustifiably puts others at risk for harm, and good voting is maybe not overly demanding but at least imposes some demands, um, most citizens would do better uh, in contributing to the civil good by performing activities of other kinds Um, uh, and, you know, volunteering. Uh, donating, these kinds of things. Um, You argue that voting, though, is um, a special kind, a distinct kind of civic activity. And therefore, the obligation, um, the Samaritan obligation, is not simply an obligation to contribute to the good of one's society. I mean, you might have a Samaritan duty to do that, but that more particularly, uh, there is a Samaritan-based obligation to vote, um, can you tell us why voting is a special uh, activity that contri- on your view is a special activity that contributes to t- that contributes to the social good?
1: Sure. Um, so, so first, uh, the fact that that you could help society and others doing other things than voting does not necessarily mean that because of that reason, voting should not be obligatory. Right? We may have many duties to do things for others. And the conclusion might be that maybe our notion of what we owe others is a little bit more demanding that we would like to care. We'll care to admit. <laughs> right. Um, right. So so that that first, the the fact that you can help others doing other things does not mean that voting is non-obligatory for that reason. And as as you say, there's something special, I argue, morally speaking about the act of voting, that, that other forms of helping and other forms of political action also do not necessarily match, even though they may complement it. And it, it, the gist of the argument is that voting, at least until now, <laughs> is the only mechanism that can legally speaking, that is, juridically speaking, install governments in power. It's the only mechanism that can, as a matter of official uh, law, put people and coalitions in the seat of power. Um, other forms of participation can complement this, if you will, this this purpose. They can so massive protests can help. Um, Ruin a government's reputation or make, make it fall from grace. Uh, but none of those forms of participation can actually take governments out, officially, illegally speaking, or put them in power. Only elections can do that. And as I said before, who's in power or whose government matters because governments unlike any other human organization, ha- have a massive power to affect our quality of life in a way that other, other organizations cannot, no matter how powerful. Um, so this is the reason, this is the link, if you will, this is the reason why voting is so important and unique, which, again, doesn't mean that other forms of helping have to be optional or are not effective or important in achieving other types of results. Um, so and in, in the book, I give a sort of an example, it's a, it's a little bit of a ridiculous example, but the example is supposed to illustrate the argument that we don't have to think of other ways of helping as trivial to think that voting is important. So think about it in these terms. You're waiting for the bus to arrive with your dear friend who's in crutches. She's had an accident. He can't walk very well, so he needs your help uh, boarding the bus. When the bus is approaching, um, you hand him a check and you say, here, this is to help with your uh, student loans, but I want to help you board the bus right now. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's, um, that's great that you're helping your friend with, uh, with money to face those student loans who wouldn't like that i don't have any student loans but i gather it's a pressing it's a pressing situation it um, is
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> um
1: that, that's a very generous and nice thing to do maybe you even had a duty to do so if, if you had enough money and your friend didn't but and there
2: might even there might even be some case for making it like that is a more significant or impactful way of helping this person
1: right, right but- Right, but, but that doesn't yeah. take away from the fact that you left your friend completely alone. Right, and he can't get on the bus that he needs to get on.
2: <laughs> right, right, right. That's
1: right. And and the money cannot help him get on the bus. Your physical help can. So as 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 ridiculous as this example sounds, I, I think voting suggests a similar type of situation where where. There's only one important purpose that that you need to achieve with voting, which is to sort of help society install the right type of government. Um, It may be true that you also are obligated to help fight hunger or find a cure for cancer. But all those things do not take away from your obligation to help society install the right type of government because no other way of helping can achieve that result as effectively as voting can thus you have a duty to do so
2: right and so is is there um there's an element of the argument uh of your argument here that sort of relies on kind of like with the bus example you know you're the the election is set up for you, right? You know the 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 the, in, the infrastructure, the institution of voting and elections is sort of, you know, like like your friend with the, you know needing the the boost to get onto the bus. It's sort of you know, it's, it confronts you. It's all, all the work is done for you in setting this up. Um, so it's kind of present, right? I mean, it's it's close by. And so um, can, you, can you just spell that out? Like the, 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 the proximity uh, is, is an important consideration here, I take it, right?
1: Right, right. I argue, well, if it, it would be easy. You know, the Samaritan obligation tells us you only have to help if it will be relatively easy for you to do so. And I argue, well, elections make it so easy for us. From a strictly individual perspective, they solve the collective action of choosing representatives, right? They offer us the apparatus uh, that we need in order to make the choice, right? We know where to go to cast the ballot. We have the machines that hopefully work. Uh, (laughs) The the counting process hopefully works transparently. (laughs) All these things are set up at least from a strictly individual point of view in front of us and they vanish easily also as soon as the choice period is over so the only thing you have to do is get in the car and go vote besides getting the information needed to do so but strictly speaking there's no there's no coordination really that you have to engage in as as opposed to sort of unlike the argument that the the example that we were talking about minutes ago about the the the, the passenger being attacked on the, right. on the subway car, you have to initiate some type of coordination where who's going to go where, who's going who's to get his leg, who's going to stop him from stabbing the right. passenger. He doesn't have to do any coordination at all. You just have to go and vote because the coordination is made for you by, by, by the electoral machine that, that, is, that is likely, that is surely going to appear in front of you when the choice period starts. Um right. so if that's the case if it will be so easy for you to to participate of this collective activity then you should um, excellent yeah yeah Um so
2: you know we're 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 winding down but I I wanted to make sure um that we uh, had a chance uh to talk a little bit about the closing chapter of the book because um one of the things that happens in that closing chapter is you sort of um, you say, look, I, I, I've, I've, I've made the positive case for the, uh, the, the obligation to vote, uh, judiciously. Um, you say, I want to just sort of take a step back now and look at, um, a series of popular and from your point of view, um, unduly influential, uh, arguments against the duty to vote. Um, and you want to say, look, I, I think that these arguments, you know, independently of whether you accept my positive prescription about the, you know, the, the, the obligation to vote, looks like these arguments on their own terms don't fare so well. Um, can you tell us just a little bit, uh, uh, you know, in the, the, you know, the seven or eight minutes that we have left, can you tell us just a little bit about, um, where you think those standard, Uh, objections or rejections of the duty to vote, how they how they're flawed.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, these are so pervasive in the literature against voting and the duty in particular that I decided to tackle them or deal with them separately, because I think, as you said, they stand they they can be debunked, if you will, regardless of whether you buy my my Samaritan based duty argument or not. So I wanted to single them out as 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 not as effective as some would like to think they are. So these are two arguments, basically. The first one is, again, the argument of the voter, of irrationality, that the voter is irrational when he or she votes, because voting is not a decisive action. You can't make a difference to the result of elections. Um, And and also voting has opportunity costs, right? This is part of the argument. People. You know, some people may decide to stay home and watch movies or go 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 to a restaurant if if they prefer to do something else than voting. That means that voting has opportunity costs for them, and it's irrational for them to vote thus. I argue, well, it's true that some people may prefer to do other things when voting, but it's also true that people may prefer not to pay taxes and go on a vacation with that money. That's so right. <laughs> on that reading, so it's costly for them. Paying taxes has opportunity costs. So it's irrational, therefore immoral to pay taxes? Well, we wouldn't think so. <laughs> Rather, maybe it's better or more intelligent to say that uh, we shouldn't take a completely subjective view of what an opportunity cost is, right? I might think that staying home and not going to work uh, because I don't want to miss a potential extraterrestrial landing in my in my yard. It's rational because well it's very costly to me those types of events you wouldn't see one again the rest right. but but that's irrational it, it's irrational so basically the idea is that it's not irrational to take the costs that 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 exist in voting um, it's 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 not a terribly high cost and and therefore we should take a more objective view of what a what a proper opportunity cost is. I argue that voting for most people does not take away from the freedom to live uh, their life as they want uh, to live it. Uh, it. It doesn't truncate or, or or disable any any life plans that they may consider worthy or valuable. Therefore, it's not... It's not a good argument to say that because some may prefer to do something else with voting, then that means that voting has opportunity costs, therefore it's irrational to vote. We don't do that with many other things like taxes, for example. So why why should we think like that when it comes to voting? Um, The other argument that I tackle in this chapter is the argument of freedom. The idea here is that thinking of voting as a moral duty impinges on freedom. Because some people may not prefer to get engaged in politics. And, 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 and thinking that voting is a duty means that we adopt a perfectionist view of the good life, right? We think that participation is what makes a life well-lived. Aristotle said that, but that's oppressive. Some people may prefer to do other things with their lives other than politics, I say, well, that, that's, that's a fair objection, but my argument for the duty to vote is not based on a perfectionist view. That is, I don't argue that voting makes you a morally excellent person or makes your life morally better than than other people's lives. What I argue here is that voting can make us all free as a collective group of people in the sense of non-domination. It can make us... Less prone to being dominated by the political class, and I take this concept of freedom as non-domination from the work of Philippe Petit and other republicans, um, republicans in the in the philosophical tradition. Yes, it's basically the idea of being free as, as 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 being free from domination is 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 the idea that you can control you can control. The actions of your representatives. Right. The, the classical idea is that you are not free in this sense if you live, uh, if you are at the mercy of the ruler's desires and wishes. Right. The, the ruler may decide to be benevolent, but that that's a random fact. If he or she decides to crush you, then he might and he may and you will die. That's that's living unfree, right? I say, well, we. We can transfer this reasoning to our contemporary reality. We don't have to think about an authoritarian prince that may crush us at any time. But the fact is that when the political class is not responsive enough to our wishes or preferences or interests without paying a cost for for that, without being accountable for that, then it means that we are, in a sense, dominated by them. Yeah. We're not free in this, in this sense. Um, and this happens when people do not vote, when large portions of the population do not take to the polls. And politicians know this. They know that they don't have to cater to the needs of, of, of those sections of the population because doing, doing so does not have any costs for them. But when when those people turn to voting and politicians know this, then they will have to become more responsive <laughs> to their interests and needs and preferences. On pain of losing an election or failing to gain re election. So, the idea here is that when voting becomes more common, and the duty to vote may explain why this is the case, when people think that this is a duty, when voting becomes more prevalent in a society, then the political class becomes less free to act against our interests without paying a cost for doing so. And when this is the case, that means that we are more free in the sense that we're not dominated by them and we can we we can we can set we can set the path that that our demo, we we can set the tone that our democracy um uh, takes.
2: Fabulous. So uh you've been very generous with your time. Uh if I can just uh, ask you in our last minute or two, um, you know, you've just written this fabulous book on the duty to vote. Congratulations. Um, what's, uh, w- what's next for you? What will you do now? Well,
1: <laughs> uh, now I'm taking a little rest. <laughs> um, well
2: deserved. <laughs>
1: uh, thank you. Um you no, know, I'm, I'm very interested in this notion of civic virtue, right? Or argue that we have a duty to vote to help others in society. But what types of virtues, civic virtues, if any, are needed? for this duty to take shape, to be effective, right? And do we value civic virtue instrumentally? That is for what it does to democracy, that it, it makes it stable, enduring, healthy? Or do we also value civic virtue because, because it makes us better people? That is intrinsically. Right. These are questions that, uh, that interest me and I'm, I'm, I'm planning to to go deeper into them at some point in the future.
2: Well, uh... Look out for uh, for future work uh, from you on on those topics. Uh, but for now, uh, I want to thank you for your for your time today uh, and uh, for uh, joining us on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your new book, The Duty to Vote.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Well, and thank you, listener, for joining us for uh, my discussion uh, with Julia Maskivker. Uh, the title of the book is The Duty to Vote. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. It's highly recommended. Really, really fabulous book. Uh, Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, folks. Bye for now.